Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Arthur Petropoulos, founder and managing partner of Hillview Partners. Arthur began his career on Wall Street, which led him to working in the lower and mid-market private equity space. He has since founded his firm where he and his team advise companies on raising capital or selling their businesses. What I enjoyed about this interview is how Arthur frames up the private equity ecosystem. For anyone interested in financing or selling your business, his explanation is an excellent framework to understand the ecosystem and the motivations of buyers. We discuss a number of things, including the concepts of multiple expansion, how he approaches seller narrative development, and the pain points sellers often experience. Raising capital or selling your business is a major event, but it takes a well-run process to make it successful. In this episode, you'll get some great insights which will help you make better decisions should you find yourself in this situation. Always a ton to learn. And before we get started, I want to share with you one of the services our business, Creative Return, provides. Video is a powerful and versatile tool for you to engage new investors and help convert them into shareholders, but it needs to be done with a strategy. Before you invest money into video production, we should talk. I'll personally talk you through the intricacies and strategies of optimizing your investment. This is important because without a video strategy, all you'll get is an expensive motion picture. You can connect with us at creativereturn.ca slash video. That's creativereturn.ca slash video, or reach out to us by phone. Now, on with the show. Arthur, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here, Corey. Appreciate it. Yes. I'm looking forward to our conversation. As I understand, you've got a lot of experience in the world of investment banking, financing, and that lower mid-market uh, buying and selling of deals. And so I think there's probably a, a big conversation we can have, but the best place for us to start is with an introduction from yourself. So I'll, sure I'll hand it over to you. I appreciate that. And yes, that's kind of precisely the uh, part of the swimming pool that we occupy every day. So my name, Arthur Petropoulos. I'm the managing partner here at Hillview Partners. We're a middle market, lower middle market, M&A and capital advisory firm. Effectively, we help companies sell themselves. We help companies secure capital. And the segment of the market that we specialize in is primarily privately held companies, whether it's entrepreneur, family, small investment group owned, typically generating one to $10 million in EBITDA or pre-tax profit. And I think in most situations where there's not institutional capital involved, so you're talking about people that have grown businesses, whether it's single or multi-generation, are looking to evaluate the spectrum of strategic opportunities and, and partaking in some of those. And needing, I think, someone that's well vetted and doing that every single day to kind of help them in that process. And so we get to work with all sorts of different companies, all sorts of interesting people, and it's fun. No two days are the same, and that's the way we like it. But generally speaking, that's 
who I am. That's what we are. And that's what we do. Excellent. Yeah. It is an interesting world out there for the, the M&A activity and this the kind of, I think there's a lot going on in that space. Sure. If I'm not mistaken though, you started your career in, in banking and on Wall Street. And I'm sure you got some stories there and, and I'm sure it was foundational to what you're doing now. Can you bring us back there? Sure. So it was an interesting time, that's for sure. Growing up, I uh, wanted to get into corporate transactions. And I used to just think of it as kind of people buying and selling businesses, growing businesses. And the only people I knew who had their hands in it were attorneys for the most part. And so when I grew up, I went to law school after undergrad. And it was only in law school that I kind of figured out how this ecosystem comes together. Who are the different participants? What is private equity? What is investment banking? And so I decided after my first year of law school, that I was going to go into uh, investment banking. And so I finished my law degree, but was kind of networking along the way. And this is all with the backdrop of kind of 08, 09 and the world falling apart. And so my wife was a teacher at the time. She used to do research while I was in law school of who the top 50 investment banks were. She'd scrape all of these, whether it was chat rooms or message boards. It used to be like Wall Street Oasis. There were a bunch of different ones. And we'd have these lists and she would help me research in the early, like, just the start of LinkedIn, who are the people? And we would just, I would just sit there. I remember we'd visit each other and I would just sit there calling people all day, every day, <laughs> trying to get internships or, or leg out there just to, just to get in the mix with someone. And so what ended up happening was kind of fortuitous is given that everything was kind of imploding, the job I ended up getting on Wall Street. So I finished law school a semester early and that December, I ended up getting a job with a small uh, investment bank. So it was a, it was a spinoff of American Express that was basically helping companies finance, sell, other things called like ESOPs, other quirky transactions with within the lower middle market, middle market companies. And so initially when I was in law school, I was just reading about KKR acquiring Nabisco, thinking mm. I'm going to work on billion, billion dollar companies. But when I got out there, I was working on these types of businesses that we work with now. And it was intriguing because there was a lot more personality into it. There was a lot more nuance. Where they fell on kind of the bell curve of transactions was far more dispersed. It was much more inefficient. And I said, wow, this is really... Mm. So that's how I got into Wall Street. And then when I was... So I did a little while on the sell side, if you call it, of kind of helping people sell businesses and secure financing. And then I wanted to work on the, the buy side or the part that was buying companies. And so I had heard from a friend that uh, Cantor Fitzgerald was building out a private equity group internally. And so I had no more brilliant strategy to get a job there than I ended up calling the directory there, talking to someone at the switchboard and getting the number for the CEO, is a, a Howard Lutnick. And I just called every single day for, <laughs> I mean, months. I mean, it felt like kind of like, uh, what was it? Uh, like Michael Douglas in Wall Street to some degree, trying to, you know, trying to get in touch. But it was just, months and months of calling that. And then I got a call in for an interview for this new, they called it Strategic Transactions Group, which was their internal private equity group. And I remember sitting there with one of the managing directors and he said, there's two heads of this group. One went to Vanderbilt and one went to Wharton. He said, we have Vanderbilt resumes, we have Wharton resumes, and we have yours. But we were told we have to take a hard look at it. And so I ended up getting that job and it was really great experience. I had one more stint in, in New York of running corporate development, so kind of internal M&A for a data center company that was en ended up being acquired by one of the REITs and then decided to start Hillview Partners. But that was the that that chapter in life of, of, of Wall Street, which was tremendously educational, you know, worked a lot, long hours. I think 
I don't mean to sound like an old man, but this generation of kids didn't understand <laughs> the hours. But uh, it was yeah. good experience and kind of set everything in motion for, for what we're doing now. I appreciate the dialing for dollars of sorts, like calling every day to get in there. It yeah. sounds a, somewhat similar. Like when, when I started my f- career in finance, I joined a company that was $10 billion in revenue, about 10,000 employees. Sure. And I was part of their, their team of seven who did all their internal M&A. Oh, awesome. And so it, it was quite fascinating, right? Like we were uh, NYSE listed and we would do transactions where we'd be blacklisted and so on like that. <laughs> fascinating sure. in one sense. But I do, I think to your point, like I, I really resonated with doing the smaller deals. You know, the, the large ones, and we were working with JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, RBC, you know, big names for like that for, you know, when, when this case was a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar white knight deal we were a part of. Sure. All sexy. But I was more interested in like the, the like two and a half million dollar quick just tuck in acquisition of sure. like this Bulgarian asset. That was fascinating <laughs> to me. So sure. I'm sure. curious if you were to go back into that period of your life, what would you have done differently in your career? It to, to say, you know, I missed this or I should have been aware of that. Do you have any things where you look back and say, oh, I could have done that differently? You know what? When I got out of school, I mean, it's always that it was that I wish I knew everything when I was younger, right? I wish I could be 18 and know everything I know now and kind of take the hack at it again. But honestly, you, you take the beatings, you learn the lessons. The, I guess the only thing I would say is that sometimes when you have a gut instinct and when it's time to do something, if more time does not give you more certainty about the probabilities of it working out or not, you're better off just doing it, right? Like, mm. and so I think I had a pretty good gut instinct about a lot of different things sometimes. And I think sometimes it would just take too long to to take that step, right? I mean, even going to like when we ultimately started the company, Hillview Partners, I remember asking someone for advice at the time. And he said, look, he said, someday the only regret you're going to have is that you didn't start this sooner, right? Mm. And so I would say, quick to make certain decisions. Others, I just wish I made them them quicker because, you know, it's like the, it's like they say, like the, the time between making a decision mentally and then acting on that decision, the shorter you can make that time where like no more information is going to sway you one way or the other, then the more iterations you get at doing something and then the more wins or losses you get, but the more you learn. And so, you know, I guess any type of educational experience, which I would deem that kind of eight year period, I wish I was able to just concentrate it even more that's that's really the only regret I would have. Otherwise, you know, I think, you know, whether uh, God's plans are mine, you kind of ping pong around in a way that you do gather some really good information along the way. Hmm. Interesting. It, it's funny that resonates with me too because, like, I think about this podcast. My sure. only regret about this podcast is not having started it sooner. Right. Right. Which is a yeah. good sign. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was uh, interesting what led to it, but here we are. You know, some hundred, I think, almost one hundred and fifty episodes in now, but. Anyway, when it comes to M&A and the private equity market, I really want to get into this conversation because I've noticed that you, you've started doing some YouTube videos and, and explanations of things. And there's, I think, really great points that the CEOs and the management teams out there who are looking to engage a partner for either a capital raise or for some form of, of exit, whether they be, you know, however that looks. You talk about some of those things in those videos about like multiple expansion concept there, or like, you know, building sell side relationships or effective narratives. Can you speak to some of these that you think are most relevant and most important to management teams now in that, you know, the place where in the space that you work? Sure. 
the goal of those videos was always to say, if I was on that other side of the table, right? Because there's this, I don't think if you're smart in one thing, you're smart in everything. It's just impossible, right? So I know our business and kind of M&A well, but if I was running a chemical company, I wouldn't have any idea how this works. Just the same way that when I talk to that chemical company, we know enough, but we don't know all of the intricacies. And that's what makes subject matter specialists. And so when we look at people contemplating whether it's an exit, right? Because I think you work for decades on these companies or years and years, and then you pick your head up once in a while and say, hey, maybe we want to sell, maybe we want capital. How does this world work? And so when you understand the objectives, I think, of all of the parties in an ecosystem, lets you make a more educated decision as to what you want to do. And so people understand, okay, you're a widget manufacturer, and there's gigantic company widget manufacturer, they may want to buy us because they don't make our type of widgets. They don't sell to our kinds of customers. They don't have certain aptitudes. But particularly around financial buyers, private equity, people say, how does private equity work? What do they do? Why do they buy companies? Why do they have certain hold periods? What is their real thesis? And so if someone says, well, why are they going to buy these companies? And how does it make sense? Then that's where understanding, okay, private equity has X dollars of capital to deploy over a five to seven year frame for their investors because they have investors. And then they want to buy 10 $1 million companies at six times earnings. So $60 million worth of company that then will be worth $100 million. And so that gets to your point, whether it's multiples expansion and understanding that private equity buys things at six to eight times so that they can sell the aggregation of things at 15 times because bigger private equity wants to deploy capital and they want to deploy capital into bigger deals, not smaller deals. And so as you work up the food chain, the multiple expands until it ultimately lands in the public markets. But just explaining that kind of thesis of the ladder of institutional capital, we do see a lot of eyes open up to say, okay, I get it. That's how private equity works. Like That's why they function this way. And so we always try to think of that. I really, I really like how you've explained this. And I, I agree with you, but can you expand on it? Because I think sure. when people start to see this ecosystem of how private equity works and what it means for smaller companies who it's ultimately like the, the bigger fish scenario. And then one point that I wanted to add to that is like, you know, these private equity firms, they need deal flow and they need to deploy capital. But as you've started to frame this up, I think is a really neat way to, for management teams to view it. So please carry on. Yeah, sure. So you think of it as a ladder, right? And so you have at the bottom of the ladder, we say the ladder of institutional capital. And so you have at the bottom of this kind of lower middle market, private equity firms, some family offices, search funds, independent sponsors, and they're all looking at deals that are say one to $5 million in EBITDA, one to $10 million in EBITDA in that range. And so they are buying things, typical strategy at that rung of the ladder is kind of aggregating fragmented industries. And so whether it's industrial distribution, niche manufacturing, certain types of software. I mean, it can go across industries, but at that range, it's usually roll-up strategies is another way to explain it. Then you get into the next rung of kind of traditional middle market private equity. And so maybe that's 10 to $30 million in EBITDA. And at that point, you start to get to I think more kind of sales-driven strategies, you get into more kind of operational efficiencies, but you have kind of critical mass at that point. So if you think of lower middle market as kind of aggregating critical mass, and then traditional middle market private equity as kind of growing sales and making operating efficiencies, and then that would ultimately sell to big private equity. So that's kind of who we think of when we think of Blackstone, KKR, you know, gotcha. TPP, all these people. And those people are really, now they're grinding into 
efficiencies more. They're talking sales more. They're starting to prime these companies to go public at some point or to sell to a public company. They may buy adjacent businesses and create big holding companies. So it's not true roll-ups of exactly the same things, but starting to buy complementary businesses. So you might see an example would be, let's say you have a company that does pharmaceutical consulting work, right? For particular end users, they make a million dollars in EBITDA. Someone might go around and buy 10 of those companies and sell it to middle market private equity. That's just now running a big pharmaceutical consulting company. And then big private equity may buy that and say, okay, you've got pharma consulting. We also have pharma outsourced research and pharma manufactured products that go into the pharma space. And so they become a diversified pharma company. And then that sells to Pfizer or somebody like that, or that goes public. But at each of these tranches, you're talking different value multiples and different strategies. And this is all a wild generalization, but it at least gives you a sense as to kind of this food chain. And so where we are most active is kind of this gigantic cloud of innovation and great companies that sit towards the bottom of this ladder that are not in most times this institutional capital food chain. So whether we're helping someone bring on, call it a minority private equity investor, bring on some traditional debt or some private credit, or help sell the company into the food chain, that's usually our job is kind of translating and being that go-between and bridge between kind of businesses that work and do things really well and kind of how the whole ecosystem of capital works. And so, again, tying back to the multiples idea is that at each rung of this ladder, the multiple gets higher because the next party can pay more. And that gets into private equity. The bigger private equity gets, the lower their yield needs to be. And so you can start paying higher multiples. So there's a little bit of financial complexity to it. But generally speaking, that's kind of how we think of the, the institutional capital food chain going from a privately held, unsponsored business all the way kind of to the public markets. Yes. I find this interesting because it really informs strategy of how you're going to go out and either raise capital or see you know, a minority or, or a majority investment. So when working with the companies that you do in that lower market segment, can you talk to me about narratives and, sure. and the communication of narratives and who you're speaking to and how? Sure. So you're saying from the perspective of the, representing the company to the market or, or yeah. working with the company? Yeah. So we always say, you know, I think it was Marcus Lemonis who always quoted it well, is to say the framework of kind of people, process, product, or service. But if you think of a business as taking into consideration all of those elements, when you're bringing that company out to get sold or to get capital, you need to be able to define each of those attributes well and explain how this is truly an enterprise, right? Because the difference between a firm and a business is the fact that it's got these components in a repeatable fashion that Mm. would continue to persist even if the founder was no longer part of the business or the, the, the main person. And so you know, we always say, when you think of people, is there a key woman or key man risk within the business? And if so, how does that get mitigated? Or are there other people that kind of have the same knowledge base? You don't want a business sitting entirely in somebody's head, right? And so how do you kind of bring that out to a, a more well-established, call it C-suite, or at least some sort of kind of human infrastructure? And then when you think of process, you say, are all of the processes of the business repeatable and well-defined, are there standard operating procedures? And does it kind of continue to produce results 
irrespective of any one person kind of tinkering with it all the time. And so if you break that down to kind of how does sales work? How does execution work? How does customer retention work? How does financial and administrative or HR stuff work, right? And so if you have all the people well-defined and then you have all the processes well-defined, then you can really dig into what's the product, service, or offering? Why is it special? Why is it proprietary? The neat thing about the businesses that we work in in this size is that they don't operate on on scale in the sense of lowest cost of capital or commodity or lowest price. So it's not like there's not lead smelting plants and uh, coal mines that function in the $1 to $10 million range. It tends to be B2B services, software, life sciences, real estate services. I mean, a broad spectrum, distribution, manufacturing, but they all have something special to them, right? There's something proprietary because how else could you function at that size and be profitable, right? If you're selling widgets, well, you must be doing something unique and different than the gigantic widget company. Otherwise, they would just sell your stuff for free until you went out of business and then took it over, right? And so that's the neat part about it. And so any event, we always try to get the narrative around people, processes, and then service or product, and then take it a step further and say, to the prospective acquirers out there, you've got the fundamental financials of the business, you've got the access that they have to certain clients or end bases, and then you have their, again, proprietary, special aptitude or capabilities. So it's those kind of frameworks that we try to fuse together as we're capturing the essence of the company to go out and speak to the market. And I'll add on one last note is that The unique thing about our space, though, is that because they're not gigantic companies is you don't have gigantic attention from big companies or from big private equity. So you really have to synthesize this down. And I always say with our one of our associates, Olivia, here is that you have to make kind of the greatest candy bar in the world. Right. Because you got to get all this information down into this one really bite sized, punchy thing that someone can grasp right away and see it. And so. There's a bit of a, you know, there's art and science to it, but that's the general kind of narrative and how it boils down to us communicating it to the world. I find it interesting because I've never done really any private equity work or worked within the space that you're in. I've been much more in the, what we call public venture capital here in Canada. And sure. that's where my, my go-to is that emotion trumps logic. And so in developing a narrative to, to raise capital or to invigorate the market, it's always about leading with the emotion first and then coming back with the facts and figures to solidify somebody's initial interest. And in some ways, it's very much rhetoric to, to draw a reaction and interest, and then you can take them down the, the path of, of validating some of the arguments. But that's different than what I'm hearing from you. And I think in the space that you work where it's almost like you don't need the, the emotion so much as you need to be able to establish that there's a very there's a firm, not just another business here. That's correct. And I, and I think there's a place where both of those things kind of sit together well in the sense that you're right. Most of the companies we work with are, are kind of post-growth equity and onward, so they're all profitable. And so it's not going to be as much kind of – I mean, there's an element of selling the total addressable market and kind of the future trajectory. That's important, but it's going to be part of the equation, whereas I think on the very early stage stuff, it can be more of the equation or more of the dialogue. And so we kind of have a one-two punch of why this makes sense, why this fits, why this solves something that you're looking for today, right? And then what is all of the extra stuff that can happen in the future, right? So if you lead with kind of how this slots into something pragmatically, and then in addition to that, there's all of this upside and future trajectory because of all these other opportunities it opens up. So it's always this, private equity world, I find is kind of this mixture of 
fundamentals that make sense with possibilities that can further excite things, right? So like for every private equity company, a deal has to be good. Some good deals turn into excellent deals. So if we can paint the picture of why this will definitely be good, however, it also has the opportunity to be excellent. That's kind of the good narrative that that melds some of those things together. I, I think. see. Okay. Take me through process. Let's sure. say we're a, one of your clients, we're doing 5 million in EBITDA, whatever market, whatever uh, industry. And we need to go out and raise capital. As the CEO coming to you or as the, the management team coming to you, what is that process and how should we be framing our own thoughts into working with you best? Sure. So if you ask 10 different people in my business that question, you'll get 10 different answers. I've always erred on the side that things change quickly in this world, right? And I don't, obviously, the last five years would, would certainly, I think, support that thesis. And so, it is important to get out there and start talking to people sooner rather than waiting until you have absolutely every single piece of information kind of gathered and in, in, in together, right? So we always say kind of perfection is the enemy of progress. And so mm. our processes are always geared towards capturing the critical mass of information and then going out and having these conversations quickly so that we can kind of get a very good pulse on things, separate the good from the bad. And so what that usually boils down to is and it's a little bit, it can be a little bit quicker on the capital side of things. For an exit of a business, we always want a six month process start to finish. And so when we start working with the company, we want to get the information. So we have kind of our request lists as we're working with the company on the front end. We gather all the information and we create this, this narrative. At the same time, simultaneously, we're pre populating a data room, we're doing research around prospective capital providers or acquirers. And so we want to be out in the market talking to people two to three weeks, every engagement, as opposed to kind of waiting four months to get absolutely every little piece of information. We get all of the important things because, again, we know what the counterparty is going to be looking for, what's going to get them interested, and what's going to kind of, they're going to be able to say, play or pass. I think the problem in our business sometimes is that if you gather all of the information and you give it to everybody, it's not really going to change who's preliminarily interested in something. Mm. Or not. It's just going to take a lot more time to get there. And so we get that information. Within two to three weeks, we're out there talking to people. And really, it's the next kind of 45 days thereafter where we're having lots of conversations. Our process is different than others and where we're not I don't want to name them, but there's a couple of companies that we compete with nationally here in the States and somewhat internationally that basically their model is to get all of the information. So they take a ton of time. Then they post, they just kind of blast it out to newsletters and they say, hey, if you're interested, give us a call. And, and at this space, it's far too inefficient, I think, to get good reception or to get good data points just by kind of waiting for the phone to ring. And so what mm. we do is we do the research and then we're reaching out to people proactively saying, hey, here's an opportunity. This is why it makes sense for you. This is why you should be interested. Let us know what you think. And by virtue of doing that, we go out to 100 or 200 people on a particular deal. Those conversations are happening rapid fire. And within that 45 next days, we know kind of, okay, here's who's preliminarily interested. Here's who's definitely not interested. We always say we, the joke is kind of separate the prospects from the suspects, right? And so who's going to be really interested here? And because in this business, we always say we want the yeses fast, but we want the noes faster. Because you can get a lot of people that, whether intentionally or not, they just, they just kind of linger around and, and kick tires and ask and ask and ask. And we'd rather it be that we know who's really interested because you really don't turn noes into yeses, right? It's like that Don Draper quote, like we don't sell to non-believers, right? Like 
you really have to get someone that believes and then get them and then they'll get excited about it as opposed to taking someone who's uh, definitely not interested and say, well, let me tell you why, right? It doesn't really work. And so in any event, it's usually 60 days that we start getting the pulse on who's really interested. We usually have a round of follow-up questions, a round of Zoom meetings, and then we want offers on any situation within 90 days. So whether that's capital, debt, we can do a little quicker. Equity usually takes that 90 days. And acquisitions, offers within that 90, we would say 100 days just to give it a little bit of breathing room. But that's the 100-day mark. And that's kind of everything that happens in that front end of a process. We always say we want 10 or so hours of our client's time before we have offers because in say five or six hours to get us information, five or six hours set aside for some Zoom meetings. But the biggest pain points in the lower middle market M&A world, it's usually distraction, discretion, and slowness of time, right? Of just, mm. just length of process. And so the whole, the entirety of our process is driven around shortening the duration by a proactive outreach instead of reactive, not distracting our clients by not asking for every single little, you know, dental exam prior to talking to people. And then lastly, doing it intelligently with that outreach, with getting NDAs in place before anyone knows the name of the company. And by virtue of doing that, you shrink the duration, you don't distract your clients, it stays discreet, and we get the best, I think, opportunities and solutions and and, and offers for our clients. But but that's really the meat of the process. The last three months, two to three months, is typically the diligence process. We can dig into that if you, that, that can be a little less exciting, but yeah. but it's equally as important. And so, but that's the six month process. The hundred days is doing everything from getting info all the way to getting offers. And the last kind of sixty to ninety days is confirmatory diligence, financial tax, you know, legal, sometimes tech, and then getting to that closing line at the end of that. When it when it comes to uh, oh, I just I'm reminded by one of the episodes we did with a gentleman named Brent Holiday, who he represents tech companies who are being sold. Oh, and nice. in fact, the name of the episode we did with him was "Buyers or Liars," because he really, <laughs> you know, he painted the picture of how often he's seen companies go down the the path, and you start to get the CEO and the, the management teams, you know, rather fired up about a transaction, and and then eleventh hour, the the tune changes, and that can be, I think, both discouraging and, and hugely distracting and, and can cause some issues. So I think that there's, there's likely some experience that you bring to this to counter that. Yeah, I think it's a tempering of expectations in a way that, you know, if you started something, like let's just say today you said you never golfed your whole life and you went out there to golf and you said, how many swings of the golf club do I need before I'm good at golf? You really have no idea, right? I guess presumably a lot because it takes time to get good at anything. But when you're going out to sell a business, I do think that there's sometimes the perception that, oh, yeah, I've got three people interested. One of them is going to buy it. But I don't think people realize sometimes just how many iterations, how many conversations, how many different parties you have to have in something to ultimately get to the finish line. Because there are, and look, some some it's more malicious in the sense that it's because they want to fish for information. Some it's because you know, it just is the way it is in this business where some buyers are interested. Maybe the person who is interested from the company or private equity firm just doesn't get buy-in from the senior people, but it takes a lot of iterations. And so if someone says we're talking to three people, we say, great, let's talk to 50, let's talk to a hundred because the data points, and I also say this is that if you were selling your house and you talk to 10 people, the data points of where the offers would come in would be pretty narrow, right? It's like, it's a pretty very efficient market. It's not going to be wildly different, right? Maybe 10%, 15%, one way or the other. When it comes to privately held businesses, 
you can have offers that are twice as much as something else. You can have terms that are, whether it's structure, transition periods, earnouts, that are horribly worse or far better. And so you really need the data points to figure out where kind of the optimal part is. And you can also have the opportunity to hit an anomaly on the on the high end where someone just really needs something and really wants to do it. And so I think that's a big part of the exercise and a big part of the educational process when we're working with clients is to say, don't get too excited when things are going well. Don't get too bummed when things are going bad. We've got to have a lot of iterations here, a lot of conversations. And trust us, we will get to a good outcome. But there can be a lot of emotional undulations kind of in between. And I think that's mm. that's an important part of having a, you know, call us a you know a rabbi or a Sherpa, right? Someone kind of leading the leading the process along the way. Yeah, to, to guide the guide the companies through those firms through that that process. Right, exactly. What are some of the the recurring pain points you find that companies run into when companies or CEOs? I mean, I can I just want to paint a picture as an example of a CEO presenting the deal, pitching it in a way to you know as part of the sales process, but then does something that is like, ugh, shouldn't have done that. What are some of these recurring pain points you see when going through process? Sure. So I think that when you deal with companies, companies are very accommodating to their customers, right? So if you run a business and you're providing a service, when a customer calls and says, hey, I need a little more information about this or that, you tend to just say, sure, here it is, right? Or Mm. can you do this analysis for me and say, sure, here it is. And so I think sometimes you get executives from businesses that are are very accommodating because it's part of their nature and that's why their business is so good. But when they get into the process, they can, I'm not going to say be too nice, but they can be too accommodating sometimes where like you do have to, people will ask you questions forever, right? You know, the only thing in business, and perhaps I'm a cynic in some ways, that gets people to do things sometimes is deadlines and contingencies or mm. just saying, hey, this is all the information there's going to be. If you want, you know, play or pass, where are we? And so, I think there are some times where we'll have conversations where we try to manage that on the front end of when, when we're getting those follow-up questions from prospective acquirers. Because look, it's their job to ask those questions, but it's our job to say, look, this is better suited for diligence. No, once we have LO, you know letters of intent, then we'll start talking about these things. But you know, we're not going to give you all the client names. We're not going to give you you know, all the employee names. We're not going to do this because even though there's NDAs in place, right, there's still sensitive information. And so I say the pain point we try to kind of coach our clients along the way is there is a point where we've given enough information and we just have to say, hey, that's it. Let us know what you can do and we can talk from there. And it's kind of can feel a little kind of counterintuitive to the way they run their businesses every day. So I think I think that's one of them. And then I, you know, and that because that bleeds that goes into the idea that on an unrepresented basis, a lot of these companies will get bled of information where, again, that's where the distraction comes from, where they just ask so many questions, they give so much information, and they don't have, because they're not doing it every day, the ability, I think, to gauge the probability for a prospective acquirer. We've come into situations, you always say, what starts a process? Sometimes clients come to us and they say, hey, we'd be interested in selling this business. There are other times where they say, hey, I've got someone kind of talking to us already, jump in the process walk them through it and then bring us other parties. And so you'll see when you get into those that you say, how long have you been talking? Oh, four months. Well, what have you told them? Well, we have this data room with a thousand things in it. I said, geez, how much time have you guys been spending here? Well, they asked for it. And so to step in there and say, okay, you have all the information you're going to need. Are you going to make an offer? And unfortunately, 
sometimes those early parties are not, again, more times than not, they're not the best party to work with, where it's not the highest bidder, that's not the best terms. I think they thought they were going to buy something kind of on an unsolicited basis. And we have to step in and say, hey, what are you going to pay? And so all of this has to be done diplomatically. But there are some elements of this business where you have to kind of draw lines and try to mitigate any potential pain points. Because our job at the end of the day is to advocate for our clients to take the pain on their behalf, to avoid pain on their behalf. And so that's part of the exercise sometimes. Now, let's let's talk terms. If I was an entrepreneur or the CEO of a, a firm and I'm working with you, the last thing I want is some form of contingent earnout kind of thing. But sometimes that is a requirement. So talk us through these terms, the term sheets that come and how, how you manage through. Sure. So we always say the dollar amount is the, the headline dollar amount's exciting, but it doesn't tell all the story, if not even the majority of the story, because I could say, Corey, I'll buy your business for a billion dollars. I'll give you a dollar today and I'll give you the rest of it if you can bench press a, you know, a limousine, right? <laughs> or it's like, and so he said, oh, geez, you know, like, so, so the headline number is important, but we always say the three other buckets that really are integral and particularly in middle market, lower middle market companies are the transition period for ownership. So what are their responsibilities post-transaction? Because some of these businesses, you can just give the key and walk away. Others, there has to be a handover period. What is the structure of the deal? So to your point, is there an earnout? Is there anything that's kind of post-transaction? And then the third category is kind of stakeholders. And so what happens to the employees? What happens to the brand, the legacy? If they're integral to a community, are they going to be moved out of that community? If it's a more kind of real world business in the sense of a manufacturing company or something. And so those are the three elements, you know, going into structure in a little bit more detail is someone will say you'll get X dollars at closing and Y dollars over time. If there has to be a part that's over time, you want it to be contingent on nothing else but time passing, ideally, right? And then sometimes people will say, well, I want you to retain these clients. I want you to I want revenue to be a certain amount. I want earnings to be a certain amount. And it's really difficult to say that you're responsible for something that you do not control, right? Because it's like saying, you know, you'll give me a certain amount of money if my car is shiny after you've owned it for six weeks. And it's like, well, are you going to wash it? Are you going to do the right things? Like, so when you sell a business, it's hard not to say, well, is the new owner going to do the right things? Like, I don't want my seller's money contingent on how well this new person runs a business because now you know, that's a whole different way. Yeah, of thinking. that's. Uh, you can see how that could unpack, you know. Right. Okay, contingent on, on you maintaining these clients, but then the new, the new buyer comes in and strips the company of some elements of their operations to, to conserve cash. And all of a sudden those clients start getting lower service or however it is. And then there you go. There's, exactly. So, yeah. so we always think of it in twofold. We say if there's got if there has to be something that's contingent on a performance metric, and again, we don't want it on profit because you never know what kind of operating expenses find their way in. But if it has to be on either client retention or 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 gross or sales or something, you never want the earnout to be longer than the duration that your client is still involved with the business because you don't have control over whether the earnout's going to be achieved, and that's what you want to avoid. So you said your client is. So let's like say a- you sell a business and. It's going to sell for $10 million. And the buyer says, we'll give you $9 million at closing and $1 million after the year transition period for the seller. So our client, the seller. Then we would say, okay, fine. As long as they're available 
by phone at the end of that year, that earn out gets paid. Now, they might say, well, as long as earnings for the company are this much at the end of the year, then they get paid. I say, well, we don't have control over earnings anymore because we don't have expense control anymore. So maybe Mm. the middle ground is they would say, well, revenues have to be a certain amount. I'd say, you know what? I don't know if you're going to mess up some of these old relationships. So here's what we could do perhaps is the CEO of the company was the head of sales. He's going to work for one more year. If he hits these different sales quotas, then he gets that earn out or we make it something contingent on something that can be controlled. And again, there's different structures within the structure, right? So you could say, if you hit this number, you get all of the earn out. Or we want to take it from the perspective of if I hit hit this number, I want 50% of the earn out. If I hit this 60, we don't want anything that's called like a tipping bucket or like a binary outcome. We want oh, yes. gradients. And that way, no matter what, you're going to get some piece of it. And we want to make the highest probability that you get all of it. And so as you can imagine, there's a lot of intricacy and all these pulleys and levers. And we know what's market, what's realistic. We know what's not market, what's not appropriate. And so I think we do our clients a good service that if there has to be some element, so first off, maximize what's not contingent. And then second off, to the extent there is something contingent, take as many of the teeth out of it as possible or maximize the probability that it comes comes to fruition. And I want to add that for buyers, it's also in their best interest to to do something that's just not a binary outcome, I think. If they just structure it in such a way that that they think they're just going to win by not being hit or something, they're kind of you know cutting the nose off to spite the face. So as a part of a negotiation, I could imagine that that dialogue could happen to say, this is in our both our best interest, mutually beneficial. No, you're right. And I think we used to see some of those kind of tipping bucket, do or die, binary outcomes, maybe back in my Wall Street days, 10, 15 years ago. As this lower middle market's gotten more evolved, I think I think buyers have done themselves a favor by starting at more middle ground points where it's not. Because back in the day, right, capital was the thing in the minority. Capital was the scarce thing. I think in today's environment, it's not capital, it's the opportunities. Opportunities are scarce. And so People do, I think, lead with the better foot forward nowadays versus 10, 10, 15 years ago, where I think capital is more accessible now. Now we'll see, right? Every kind of economic cycle, does that pendulum swing back a little bit more, you know, in terms of buyer-friendly situations now? We're not seeing it as much in kind of the stuff we do because it's still, I think, very appealing given it's profitable, given it's bite size, given its ability to fit puzzle pieces with larger companies. But but, but you're right, and you point out a good... Uh, you know, good point there that I would say the best deals are the deals that no one's running away from the table, like screaming, I got them, I got them, right? Like, I think everybody has to take a little bit, everybody has to give a little bit. And in the best situations, everybody goes away happy. And then post transaction, I think gets even happier. So hmm. it's, uh, it's a yeah. good point. I understand that the cost of capital has created certainly a frenzy. I think it's it's changed now since we've seen some changes in interest rates and but for for a time there, it was just money was being thrown around, super frothy. How's that changed, and and how are you managing through that? Sure. So I, I would say what I like about the space that we function in, and it was kind of the thesis when we first started, was that it's it's somewhat of an all season ecosystem where the companies that we work with they're profitable, they've been around for a while, they do something that's pivotal in in their kind of respective industry is that they 
although sometimes they're not the sexiest of businesses. Now we do work with some very high growth software companies, tech businesses or whatever, right? That would kind of fit into that bucket. But a lot of what we do is kind of B2B services of specialty consulting firms of, could be a a window cleaning company. It could be a, a DNA testing company, but something that's proprietary. And what's neat about them is that there's almost always an appetite for them because they're profitable. Like nobody, if you think of the big company or you think of the private equity firm that buys the companies that we sell, no one gets fired for buying the companies we represent because they're always profitable. They always serve a necessary thing. And so maybe there are times where they pay too much for them, but fundamentally they all do good thing for a good customer base. There's not a lot of like wild bets on on the companies that we represent. And so I would say is that where we've seen is that in down markets or in high interest rate environments, the termites don't eat all of the wood at the same rate. Like the pain is not spread pro rata. So where we've seen pain is public companies that have been trading at huge multiples, you know, those multiples have come down. So maybe they're not as frothy about using that kind of overpriced stock to buy things. Or on the other side of the spectrum, yeah, I think VC money has dried up for things other than like the really good stuff, right? And so there's a lot of kind of the, bottom half of those VC portfolios that can argue how much it's worth or not. But with our, we're kind of in the core of all of that. We're, we're growing, we're innovative, but we're fundamentally sound. And so I would say there's, you might not have quite the same amount of kind of like the crazy offers show up in the processes as you yeah. did maybe two years ago, but every situation we work on, there's a good meat and potatoes of solid, very strong offers in every situation, just because I think we pick clients right? Just as much as they pick us that fit the mold of that kind of, I wouldn't be, if you had to say like, who's your kind of investment people you look up to and it, you know, it's very much that Benjamin Graham, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, Mm. when I think of kind of in Canada, you know, Fairfax, places like that, where it's fundamentally driven stuff. So if our clients are that, they're always appealing to somebody and I think always at a good price. And so look, we're going to test this thesis as we kind of go through the next, I think downward trend, but thus far, everything's been very resilient because again, tying back to the self-preservation theory, anybody who's running corp dev for a large widget distributor is never going to get fired for buying a profitable small widget distributor that does a certain thing. And so they always generate returns. They are always good companies. And that's kind of our, our thesis. Yeah. Simple, good companies that are not sexy. Yeah. In yeah, large maybe, part, yes. Yeah. Maybe some have a bit of sex appeal, but they they, they fundamentally fit the the piece of the puzzle. And, and that's what I'm hearing from your work as an advisor is finding where that piece of the puzzle fits and then ultimately getting the best, the best outcome. I want to ask about the proliferation of AI and the future of the lower middle market and in these organizations that are there. How do you see this impacting them? Is it something that is, is worth talking about or is it just a passing fad? I don't think it's a passing fad. I think that anytime there's that kind of like irrational exuberance curve, or I forget what they call it, but it's like when something's first out, it's really exciting. And then it kind of goes through this, like, ah, it didn't, didn't, didn't happen as fast as we thought. And then it slowly builds back up to what it ultimately becomes. And so we've seen that whether it's 3D manufacturing, whether it's AI, certainly another component of it, but you see that with kind of whatever the newest exciting thing, blockchain, crypto, this, that, right? And so what we see in business sometimes is 
not from our clients, but you'll see with other businesses that are for sale or in the public markets, the public markets, you see it a lot because it moves the needle is they'll, I always call it, they just sprinkle some AI on it where it's like, oh, yes. you know, and it's like, yeah, it's like you take some like old line company that makes like ice cream cones and public company. I don't know if it was like Xerox or somebody last year would say like, we're incorporating blockchain into Xerox. And it's like, I don't even know yeah. what that means, but the stock would go up 20, 30%. And so with our, with our clients, we say you have to be aware of all these things. You have to incorporate it where it can be incorporated, but you have to do it in a bona fide way. You have to do it in a real way. Cause at the end of the day, if you just use the words a lot, right, that fades away, that fizzles and you'll see public markets, everyone that was saying ESG last year, now it's not so fun to oh, say, it, that, yeah. say it. Right. And so we say that, so tying back to AI, it is important it will be a component. It's like software. It will be a component of every business at certain points, right? And I think there's this kind of, you know, stigma of, uh, you know, this kind of like Terminator sunset where the cyborgs come about. But in reality, what is AI? It's just further automation of processes within a business, right? Where you're getting inputs or outputs from something in, a, in an automatic fashion. So we're seeing clients that are figuring out how to make it part of their business. At the end of the day, almost all businesses still come down to human relationships at some point. So it will not obviate these businesses, but it will be a part of it. So just the way we've sold companies that say, hey, they've really incorporated a good software kind of dashboard into everything they do. Now we're seeing companies that say, hey, this part of the business is automated in this way. And you know whether they call it AI or just the implementation of more advanced software, it's a part of it. And so I think the important part when it boils down to tying back to the narratives is just to kind of highlight that our clients are not working. There's this stigma sometimes that if you're dealing with a small building supply manufacturer, that they just kind of are still writing everything down on pens and paper and that they're just completely agnostic or, or avoiding of technology. It's quite the opposite. Everybody's figuring out constantly how to incorporate it into their business. And so when we go out to the market, it is an it is a part of the narrative to say they've built this great business and brand over the last 50 years, which no AI can recreate that. However, they've incorporated some of these technological advancements in AI and software and tech to further optimize the business. So again, it's always this combination of the best of the old with the best of the new, that creates an exciting opportunity. I gotcha. You know, as you're going through that, I think about some of the world I've been in has been very much, you know, on the equity side and, and you and early stage startups and venture capital, you sell the dream. Yes. And when you sell the dream, the, you can't even really do the due diligence to a degree. And especially, I mean, I don't like saying this, but when the public markets and you're using public venture capital, you know, sure. kind of SPACs is, is the US equivalent. Sure. You can really go sell AI, and as I'm in air quotes here, of what we're doing. But it's kind of, it can be, it very much can be smoke and mirrors. But when it comes over to the businesses you're saying, when you're actually going through and you're making a sale and you're going through a process, and if you've just been waving around a flag saying I, AI and you actually get into the diligence side, it all right. comes very clear that that's not there. And there's not right. even the dream to sell. So don't even bother. Right. You know, if it's used to optimize and it can be demonstrated, that's a bonus, but but nothing there, nothing else. And look, it comes to, and there's a credibility element to it in our business too, where it's like, we want credibility with our clients, obviously, that we do a good job for them because then they tell other people and that's great for us. But even with the acquirer community, we always want to have that as well, where you know, we've gone out there with different deals, with idiosyncratic deals, distress situations, and a lot of really, really good situations. But when we communicate it to the possible acquirers or capital providers, it's very straightforward. 
It's, you know, here's what it is. Here's what it does. Here's why it's exciting. So the narrative is important, but there is a line where you can't sell a bag of beans because, you know, the next time you go to talk to that company about something, whether it's the corp dev group at, you know, which we have great inroads into very large companies, but we've been able to show a $3 million software company to Microsoft, to Amazon, to IBM. So when you have those pipelines into the companies, they don't want their time wasted either. So yeah, the narrative has to be compelling, but has to be accurate. Yeah, gotcha. I'm curious about the books you read and the oh, uh, and podcasts and you know things that you find interesting, both personally and professionally. I appreciate that. So I like to think that whether it's music, reading, philosophy, you have to be an independent thinker and you have to have an eclectic kind of taste or consumption of things because I think, you know, going back to his book, Plato's Republic, right? There was this whole idea of the echo chamber and the cave. And in a world where there's so much content everywhere, you don't even have to indulge in something that disagrees with you. You can just constantly eat the food that, you know, that you yeah. want. You can constantly read the stuff that agrees with you. And it can turn into these kinds of, I think that can be harmful to personal progression. So when I think of kind of what doesn't change, or what is completely objective of these things? Like favorite book, if anyone ever said, I said it's the Book of Proverbs in the Bible. I know there's the the equivalent in the Jewish, I think it's the Ketuvim, and then you know in the book in the Quran. Like, but there's different things. But the books of wisdom, right? Solomon, because those things are are perpetual. And so you have that. I mean, you go back to Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, the ideas of Stoicism, which is another thing that seems lost in this world to some degree. Investing wise, I think they differ there. Actually, I've seen a real uptake in stoicism as of I late. Hope so. yeah yeah and and i mean because i started following and and you know kind of just sure. reading much more about it and it's been a few years now but perhaps i'm now in that echo chamber as well where, <laughs> where i'm just every time i see it i consume it but hey, i do agree with no, you i think it's good. very powerful meditations of marcus aurelius and and stoicism in general but yeah please carry on yeah sure no epictetus i mean that and then modern day more investing it was you know, the intelligent investor, security analysis with kind of the old classics. Anyone who wants to get wise on businesses, I would read all of Warren Buffett's shareholder letters. Remember, mm-hmm. you, you can go find them on their website going back to the 70s. I mean, that's just a gold mine of information. You know, Charlie Munger has some of his own. He's a little more cynical, but still pretty good. And then, you know, I think from a content perspective, you know, looking at more kind of, because I think you also have to be careful not to just consume like, the older stuff, you really have to, because there's a lot of, there's there's tremendous amount of content there, and but you always have to keep looking at newer stuff too. So just as much as you look at, you know, Machiavelli's Prince or Sun Tzu's Art of War, right? You want to look forward too. And so I think of a lot of that as being digital in this in this day and age, but Alex Hormozzi's, you know, $100 million offers, I mean, great book. I think there's just other guys that have really, men and women who have really gotten out there and kind of shown kind of the modern way of communication of some sorts. I mean, Cody Sanchez was another person that did oh, yeah. a lot of small He's been on the podcast a couple of times. Okay. Right. I mean, just, yeah. it's really brilliant stuff. And, you know, I'm trying to think, I mean, you can go all the way business or non-business or like the, the way of the superior man, deep work like Cal Newport, you know, there's so many different things to glean, but, but I guess, so, so I'm a consumer of a lot of content. Some I agree with, some I don't agree with. I think there's a, what do they say? An ounce of truth in every pound of lie. I think there's a string of value everywhere you look. And so, look, I read, you know, I go for runs and work out every morning and I listen to the book of Proverbs every single week because that's the, that brings you back to kind of the base and I think keeps you 
stabilized and at a homeostasis. And then I just consume a lot of other stuff to get those little nuggets of ideas that kind of form that pastiche of concepts. Wow. Okay. Appreciate that. Yeah, sure. As we, as we aim to wrap up here, any final advice? If I was a CEO or management team coming to you and saying it's time to sell or it's time to raise capital, any final advice for us as the audience? I think the the judgment of whether someone should sell something or or seek capital should be one that's well thought of. And so I always say, if something's a good idea late at night when you're exhausted, it has to be a good idea the morning that you wake up and you're full of energy. I think sometimes the perspective of trying to sell a business, trying to buy a business, securing capital, it's it kind of goes like this, where people will think it's a good idea or want to do it when they're at their limits. And then it kind of contracts, some of the stressors contract and then they don't want to do it. And then it kind of goes out again. And there will be a time, whether it's like the third or fourth iteration of contemplating it, where it says, no, this is definitely the right move. And so we like working with clients through that kind of thought process. And so we always say, the decision is a permanent decision. And so it has to have kind of permanent feelings behind it because it's not the worst thing, but you know, we want to make sure that our clients are bought into what they want to do just the same, right? And we've had situations where we've gone to sell a business at the last minute. Someone says, hey, you know what? I got a kid that wants to go in it or I've got a partner. Or I just really don't want to sell it. And that's okay. That happens. But I'd say is any advice is just to measure twice, cut once, just like in any business. You know, these are These are big decisions and they should be thought about in the same light. And when you're hiring someone, not to sell my own book here, when you're hiring somebody, make sure they're going to take it as serious as you are. Make sure that they're going to live, eat and breathe the goals, the objectives that, you know, I want to be happier than my clients when we sell their business. I want to be angrier than my clients when things don't work, right? And we will temper the emotions throughout the process, but they should feel like there's someone else in the trenches with them as we kind of pursue these things. So that's the, at least the parting thought on, on our part. Arthur, I, I really appreciate it. I'm glad we connected here. Thanks for your insights. No, I appreciate it, Corey. Very much so. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.